is Cup of Go for November 24, 2023. Keep up to date with the important happenings in the Go community in just 15 minutes per week. I'm Jonathan Hall. And I'm Shai Nechmad. Good morning, Shai. Good morning. Sorry for the low energies, everyone. We're both on the verge of being too sick to make the episode. <laughs> but, but the show must go on. Yeah, the show must go on. And, and also we have some, some tea and coffee in, in our beautiful uh, mugs. Let, let me get some Foley work in here. Check it out. That's for all the ASMR people. All right. We don't have a proposal news this week because, you know, the proposal team is on vacation. Yeah, the silly the Americans holidays. are all doing Thanksgiving instead of reviewing our proposals. Yeah. So uh, we're going to cover some different things today. But first, let's do conferences and call for papers and whatever. What's going on in Berlin? Yeah, so go for Con Berlin. We, this is the one we all know and love if, you, if you're in Europe. It's coming up June 17 to 20. You may recall last week we talked about go for Con in Athens, which is being added this year. So there's actually two European GopherCons this year. But the Berlin one, CFP is open through February 18. So you have plenty of time to think about what you're doing, but don't procrastinate too long because you don't want to forget. Yeah, and I'm going to come in with the urgency. Page Doubt is looking for one-page articles until tomorrow. So if this strikes you with inspiration, you want to write a one-page article about programming, hacking, anything security-related, demo scene, and obviously specifically Go, Paged Out is a super, super great newsletter. I've written in the first two issues. Uh, it's run by Jinval. I really like the guy. And you have until tomorrow. So if this strikes you with inspiration and you have this one thing you really wanted to write about for a while, stop listening now. Just go write it. It's uh, one page. You can totally do it and hand it in. A call for paper closes tomorrow. I, I'm planning to do it. I've procrastinated writing uh, a thing with my wife. And I really hope to just hunker down tonight and write a thing. Although it's not going to be about Go, but but still. And even if you don't want to write, go check out Page Out. The first two issues are really, really good. And I think it's it's a lot of fun. It's very creative. And just to be clear, for anybody listening in the future, uh, if you didn't listen to this the day it's released, tomorrow means November 25th. That's when the, the CFP ends for, for the Page Out. Yeah, but go check it. They might delay the deadline. And even if not, you can follow and, you know, subscribe to their newsletter and, and whatever. Uh, it's really high quality stuff. It's uh, every article is being reviewed, and I, I've tried to hand in too. I learned a lot in the process. Uh, I got the feedback and reviews and whatever. And it's really hard to write short stuff. There's this famous quote, right? Uh, Sorry for the long letter. If I had more time, I've written a shorter yeah, letter, yeah, yeah. something like that. So that's call for papers. You have something to hand in tomorrow, and you have something to hand in in February. Uh, and we would love to see your stuff. So, Shai, I hear you like snakes. You've been using Python lately. Ugh, don't even... I get the segue because you're going to go towards Cobra. But yes, I've been using Python. And honestly, I'm so over it. I'm so over, oh, the Conda environment, the pip environment. And it's uh, you have to run it on Docker. And PyCharm takes 15 seconds to load. So I tried to use VS Code. And VS Code doesn't have the thing and blah, blah, blah. Ugh. All right. So if you, like Shai, love Python so much, but you're looking for a reason to bring your love for snakes back to Go, Cobra has a new release out. Uh, what does it include? <laughs> <laughs> that might be the cheesiest, longest segue we've done in this entire show. It was long and slithering, akin to a snake. <laughs> uh, all right, so Cobra is that library that you probably already know about, together with Viper. It's usually a really good combo for environment variables, flags, and whatever. So Cobra is the uh, flags part of it, uh, used to write... Uh, CLIs and, and stuff like that. And we have release 1.8.0, uh, which has some bug fixes and maintenance stuff, but also has some cool features. Yeah. So one of the interesting things is that it now supports usage as a plugin for tools like Cube Cuddle. So, Cube Cuddle? Yeah. 
No, Cube CTL or Cube Control. Well, I'm not. This is gonna. You're gonna die. The house now? divided. <laughs> I'm willing to accept canines. I'm willing to accept Gone W. But Cube Cuddles ain't nothing cuddly about Kubernetes clusters. They're sharp and pointy. Anyway, so what does it mean that uh, it can be used as a plugin? So, I mean, I've never written a Cube Cuddle or Cube CTL or Cube Control plugin, but I, I think uh, I mean I think you can do the same with Git. Like you can create a, a, a binary called with Git. It's Git dash foo, and then it sort of auto, if, as long as it has the right uh, interface, it automatically gets called when you call Git space foo. So I imagine it's the same sort of concept. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly what this feature does. So essentially, you can create a cube CTL dash plugin executable, uh, and then when you call cube CTL space plugin, it, it executes it. But it needs to conform to the right command argument formats and stuff like that. So it just makes it easier to do that sort of. Thing. So what I'm wondering is what other cube CTL plugins I would write if I because that's the example they gave, and Git is perfect as far as I'm concerned. I'm like wondering wh- which uh, cube CTL plugin I would write with this feature. But uh, I'm I'm happy to see this PR because it makes a lot of sense. And that'll be the questions at the end of your interview on the Kubernetes podcast. What would you add to? Kubernetes? Yeah, totally. Uh, I guess Helm could use some some more plugins and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Where where you sort of define like I've I've been re- writing a lot of scripting around Helm lately, so maybe that could help. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, there's also a lot of other features. If you use Cobra, you should probably upgrade anyways because uh, it has some uh, bug fixes and whatever. One thing that it's, uh, it's really nice to see it's a lot of features around completion. Uh, so, you know, if you like to install completions of core commands, tab is going to work a little bit better for you. Well, we said we wouldn't do proposal news, but there is one small proposal we want to mention uh, about documentation. Mm-hmm. So CMD doc now supports a new syntax. What does that mean? Have you ever been stuck using uh, multiple versions of a particular library? Maybe you're using Cobra 1.8 and 1.7 on two different projects on your system. Mm-hmm. Totally. And you want to look at the documentation for the one you're using at that moment, and you try go doc, and you get the wrong one. So that happened kind of less for me because usually Go packages are kind of good with backwards compatibility. So looking at the latest documentation usually is good enough. But it happened once, once or twice with like database drivers and stuff like that. Yeah, I've had it happen where I'm looking at the docs and it says, "Oh, here's this great feature. This is exactly what I need." I try to use it, and it's not there because I'm stuck on an old version of the, of the library. So basically, Go doc will let you specify the version now. So you can do Go doc github.com slash spf13 slash cobra at v1.7.0 or whatever to get the version that you care about. So that's kind of cool. I would imagine, uh, you know, when I type go doc in a package name, it would choose the right one based on the environment. So I guess this is a step towards that as well, right? Like if I'm in a specific directory, look at the go mod and tell me the documentation for the correct version. But it's not there yet. I'll have to specify it manually. All right. And there's another release to a package near and dear to my heart, Hugo. Um, I haven't been blogging for the last like two months due to the situation uh, here in Israel, but I do love blogging and I do love blogs. So I, every time Hugo releases a new version, I'm, I'm really happy about. Uh, it's already kind of old news because it's been in our backlog for a while, uh, but they released uh, 120. So it's like 0.120, which is a lot of miners. And it's a really cool feature where if you have something slow in your uh, Hugo templates, which is very abnormal. You know, when you build Hugo sites, it's very snappy normally. Uh, you could use a debug timer on the template to see why it's why it's like rendering slowly. It's sort of profiling your Hugo build process 
um, which is just the sort of, you know, crazy attention to detail that people who use, you know, static binaries to build their HTML sites to blog about how they build their site with static binaries <laughs> uh, would like. And I assume a feature that would be useful for like two people in reality. Uh, but I just love seeing it. Uh, there's a whole bunch of other notes, but that's, I think, the highlight uh, and a whole bunch of improvements and, you know, uh, making stuff a string and markdowns and emojis and, and deprecating some old stuff. Uh, deprecating Google Analytics, which I'm happy to see because it's been really hard to maintain it because Google have been changing their analytics engine with, you know, with the month notice ahead. So it's no longer natively supported in Hugo, which is great. But yeah, mostly the debug timer in the template, which I really like. Uh, and if you build your sites with Hugo, it should be super easy to upgrade because it's usually very backward compatible and you just get more speed and more features every time you upgrade. I think I'm still on 111. Oof, you have nine versions to go. Now's the question if you do it incrementally or if you just jumped to 120 and hope that the site doesn't break. Although with Hugo, I wouldn't worry too much. It's probably going to yeah, be fine. I'll probably jump. The, I, the reason I stick on a fixed version is I have had it break once or twice in the past uh, when they removed a deprecated feature or something. So as long as it's working, I kind of stick with what I have for a while. But it's it's time to upgrade. All right. Uh, and we have one last release we want to talk about, VS Code Go. Yeah, so VS Code Go 0.40.0 was released. Um, I'm already using it. The big addition here is that it uses the newest version of Go PLS, which means it has telemetry opt-in support. Uh, I have opted in to telemetry on both my laptop and my desktop machines, uh, but it also adds a few other things, uh, or in a sense removes a few things. Uh, apparently there were some refactorings that VS Code had implemented themselves that are now part of Go PLS. So they could sort of remove those from VS Code and just rely on the Go PLS uh, version. And then, of course, a few bug fixes and, and things like that. But the big news here is that you can now opt in to telemetry for Go PLS if you're using VS Code. I love the Go VS Code features, stuff like fill struct and extract to function are just like su such useful shorthands. Uh, and I use uh, VS Code like with Vim bindings. Uh, I've, mm -hmm. I've been convinced to live to, you know, uh, colon uh, WQ Vim uh, <laughs> into VS Code is just too good. Um, and it's nice to see the package being maintained. If you do want to opt into telemetry as well, and I don't know, I don't want to influence opinions too much, but I definitely think you should, you know, for like the good of the language maintainers. There's a command here that you can run. You know, if the prompt like jumps up and you ignore it, like I do for every single uh, VS Code prompt, uh, there's a command you can run as well. Go run blah, 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 telemetry uh, on. And it just turns on uh, Go telemetry for you on, on your machine. You know, we have the release in the show notes, so you can grab that command and run it. Uh, any piece of data helps other than the garbage data, which they still don't have a good solution for. All right, so that's it for releases. And we have a few cool things we want to talk around the community we saw. Um, so one blog post that we saw all over the place, I think uh, in Golang Weekly, and uh, Mihai popped it in a few places, uh, is about nil panic detection at Uber. And it's a really, really good blog post, really well written. The way I measure really well written stuff is if they have, you know, a flowchart and I can just look at the flowchart instead of reading the entire article, then we're good. So that's exactly what this is. You have two flowcharts and I'm just going to describe them. And then you can go read the article. Uh, the first flowchart describes the problem. In Go, you know, it's a statically typed language, right? So you shouldn't have errors where you put a number where a string should be. But there is one elusive type which can harm you at runtime, which is 
I can think of more than one. I'm talking about nil, right? Nil. Unexpected nil error is is something we we want to avoid. You know, null point interceptions if you come from uh, Java and whatever. And they and they can be elusive. Obviously, you can put like x equals nil and then x dot something, and you know that's pretty obvious to catch. But you know when you go into internal structs and sometimes they return nil and sometimes they don't return nil and they return an interface and an interface can be nil but you almost always expect it to not be you can end up uh, returning a nil interface value from some like internal function and you get unexpected nil errors in runtime nil panics right mm-hmm. uh, which you see like panic runtime error invalid memory address or nil pointer dereference which you really don't like to see there's an example here from the net library from the standard library so this is not just some you know error that happens to like uh, beginners and after a week you you're never going to do it again it happens in the standard library as well so that's like the first flowchart right you return nil somewhere you expect it to be non nil uh, someplace else you end up with a with a runtime error. Uber, which has a huge Go uh, mono repo, built something called Nilaway, which has a pretty cool architecture. You shove in Go code, and it has an analyzer engine, an inference engine, and an error engine, which all run like one after another, parallel and like very. It should be very low latency, and it outputs nil panic errors by statically analyzing the code. So you'll meet these errors a lot earlier, uh, which is a great benefit to your CI process or, you know, your development process. You can just save on discovering these errors in production. It is fast. It is kind of precise. I think they aim to avoid false positives. So they might have a few like true negatives, but they really don't want you to inspect anything that might waste your time. And it seems like it's kind of fully automated. You don't have to set anything up to to use it. They show some example here where, oh, if you dereference something from a closed channel, it will throw nil, and their analyzer finds it, which I wouldn't find in code review. Even if you showed me this code and you were like, what's the error? I don't think I would have caught that. So a really, really cool tool. And also something cool they share is... You know, they have these like nil panics that are statistical every now and then, and then they deploy it and the chart doesn't have the errors anymore, which is, is really, it's really good marketing, I guess, for a tool like that. It's open source. You can just go to uber-go nil away. I think if you implement code in Go and you don't want nil panics, just try and implement it. I really hope it will integrate into like Golang Sea Island and will become default as time goes on. For now, it's an Uber thing and you have to install it separately, which is a bit of a hassle, but definitely worth checking out. I also think I looked at the code a bit and the code itself is pretty interesting, like analyzing uh, stuff and whatever. It is active development, right? It's it's early, uh, so I wouldn't trust it 100% to catch all nil errors. And if you have code review processes at your company, I wouldn't throw them away. But I think it's a good tool to add to your arsenal. Uh, so check it out. Obviously, the link is in the show notes. Very nice. So apparently there's been some news this last week at OpenAI. I don't know. I don't I don't really follow the news. What what happened? <laughs> <laughs> lie. I do I do follow that news. But we're not going to talk about all that. We're talking about something else at OpenAI. That is they've recently made it possible to use ChatGPT to sort of create your own custom chatbots. And I've seen a number of these pop up all go related. So there's links to three of them in the show notes. There's Go for Bro, which gets my vote for least popular name. <laughs> there's uh, Moss the Go expert. 
stylized after uh, Moss from uh, the IT crowd. Yeah, have you tried turning it off and on again? <laughs> and then Golang Math Mentor. So those are the three that I have linked in the show notes. I'm sure there's a thousand others out there. I'm curious if anybody here has tried one of them or multiples of them, and how has it been going? Uh, stop by the Cup of Go Slack channel and let us know your experience with ChatGPT or one of the ChatGPT Go-specific chat uh, chatbots. Uh, has it helped you? So there's one thing I asked Moss, um, which is, if you were to remove one feature for Go, what would you remove? I don't really like the answer. It was like, Nil value for slices and maps. So it doesn't want nil value for slices and maps. It claims it would simplify, reduce errors, and be consistent with the language philosophy. But also it's like, it's important to know that this change would be a significant alteration to the language and might disrupt the existing code bases. Yeah, yeah, thank um, All right, interesting answer. Yeah, yeah. I, Stick around for our interview with Moss later on. No, I'm kidding. No, no, we're, <laughs> we're not, not this year, maybe next year. Yeah. It's not there yet. I don't get the like I get it as a novelty fun thing, but I don't get it as a as a like productive tool because you already have stuff integrated into VS Code. You already have you know stuff that's reading your code in your context. But maybe maybe for educational purposes, this could be good or code review. Well, I think we have one thing left on our backlog for the for today. Yeah, yeah. One other thing we wanted to uh, share about the community. So Miki, our first ever interviewee has been like silently posting uh, videos on Ardan Lab's uh, channel. And I think they're really good. Short form, one to two minute videos. They're called Tabeka Shorts. Uh, just sharing one specific feature uh, that you might want to know about. Whether it's detecting race conditions or using time equal instead of equals equals to compare times. It's like a one minute, 17 seconds video. He released like 35 of these. So... Just, you know, having this playlist to pass the time now and then when you're waiting in line or whatever, we can definitely recommend it. It's been pretty cool. The last one released is about rate limiting. And, you know, I expected to watch it and just like be, oh, cool, Miki, I know this guy. But obviously I know everything the video is going to show. But no, he taught me about a new tool for uh, load balancing called Hey, which I wasn't aware of. And now I just installed on my machine. So really cool short format stuff worth checking out. And I think that's it for today. Not a ton of news in the Go uh, world, but also we're both low energy and sick. Thanks for uh, sticking around. Uh, we have a cool interview coming up. Yeah, we have an interview with uh, Webb Morris, who is the co-founder of a company called Canopy, which uses Go to monitor remote devices. So stick around for an interview with Webb Morris. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Welcome to our ad break. We are not sponsored by anyone today. If you want to sponsor this show and grab this ad uh, space, grab this attention, reach out to us and, and ask to buy it. If you want to reach out to us, uh, you can go to couplego.dev. That's our site. You can reach out to the community and connect to the rest of the listeners at the Gopher Slack uh, at hashtag cupogo, kebab case with hyphens, and email us at news at couplego.dev. That is news at couplego.dev. Please share the show. Could be cool. And we've had really good listenership recently. And it's really a lot of fun to see the community already forming like its internal jokes, internal like tribes and teams. It's like really forming. So it's a good time to join the bandwagon. A good way to let people know about the show is to leave a review. Leave a review on Spotify, on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. Uh, but there's really nothing better than just sharing it with like a coworker or a friend that that's interested in Go. Other than that, 
we have a sale on the merch store. You can check it out on the uh, Gopher Slack channels as well. And we might, depending on how hard it is to set up, have uh, some apparel soon because someone asked for us to make a t-shirt. So there might be some new merch dropping as well. Uh, Thanks for listening and stick around for an interview with Webb Morris. Talk to you all next week. Bye-bye. Welcome, Webb, to the show. I'm glad to have you here. I'm here with Webb Morris. Unfortunately, Shai is not able to make it to this interview today. So it's just the two of us today, Webb. Would you tell our audience a little bit about who you are, what you do, and how Go fits into your life? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Jonathan. My name is Webb Mara. I'm the PTO and co-founder of an organization called Canopy. We're previously known as Banyan Hill Technology, but we recently rebranded our uh, company to better reflect the product that we put out, which is called Canopy. Um, Canopy is uh, a remote monitoring and management platform that really is agnostic to the devices that we serve. And our goal is to help increase uptime and manageability of remotely deployed devices, typically that are in the unattended space. Uh, So uh, things that don't necessarily have a human close to them, uh, keep watch over them. So for us, we have uh, an endpoint agent, we call it LEAF. um, because That fits in with the idea of canopy. Yeah, Um, okay. Yeah. And, uh, and so LEAF is uh, a bit of code that runs at the endpoint. It, uh, it provides the, some of the smart of the solution, uh, and uh, it communicates telemetry about the devices um, that, we're, uh, that we have under management. And also allows us to, to execute remote commands against those devices and is responsible for software upgrades and, and configuration upgrades at the endpoint. Uh, and it's written in Go, uh, and uh, we made that choice. About, it's been almost 10 years ago now, which is kind of amazing to think about in terms of a decade um, of time spent uh, developing and and honing this product. But uh, it was uh, a great choice. We can talk a little bit about that if you'd like uh, and what we, uh, and how we got to go a few years ago. And that's where um, really we, uh, we have the majority of our expertise is at the endpoint and go. At the enterprise side and the cloud, we uh, typically are running Java, Spring Boot, Groovy-based uh, applications there from an ease of operating and uh, an enterprise appointment. Mm-hmm. Uh, Very interesting. What kinds of devices are, are you monitoring them? Are these, are these like custom-made embedded devices, IoT devices, Raspberry Pis? What, what kind of stuff are we talking about here? Yeah, really all the above. Okay. Um, but for the most part, our uh, kind of our sweet spot are devices that uh, typically don't have an operating system. You know, it'll be either uh, some, of the, you know, many flavors of Linux, or it might be uh, Windows-style devices that are at the endpoint. And these devices then are connected to uh, other equipment that's there, generally for whatever purpose they're, um, they're serving. So we have situations where we have security camera controllers that then canopy responsible for monitoring and managing um, the fleet of security cameras. And it does so from a centralized controller that exists within the network. We have situations where uh, what we refer to as kiosk style deployments, where you have, you know, a, a device, uh, you could think of it like a, uh, we have devices in hospitals that sense and uh, receive linens or scrubs, for example. And so the device itself has a primary function and then leaf lives on that device 
and is helping to monitor and manage the various mechanics of it. Uh, think about bill pay without appointment. Uh, you might uh, walk up to a kiosk in a store and you need to pay your bill or do some other sort of transaction. And then you've got devices like, you know, payment readers, receipts, uh, maybe even bill collectors, you know, things of that nature uh, that are there. And then we also have a really wide range um, of, of kind of miscellaneous deployments. We have uh, some deployments that are in large warehouses where we're helping to monitor and manage uh, the controllers that are responsible for the refrigeration in those warehouses. Uh, so tracking the temperatures and pressures and things of that nature, uh, some of them from a safety perspective. And then we have deployments where uh, we're part of the manufacturing process. Um, where maybe there's a small controller that exists that's helping to improve processes on a manufacturing line or things of that nature. And then finally, to your point, the um, we do have some deployments where the actual a product is, is an embedded product. Uh, you think of it, for example, like a smart power switch, for example. And in those situations, typically the firmware um, has been modified to be able to talk to our enterprise and our uh, actual endpoint agent isn't necessarily going to be on that device, at least not in the way that we think about it. Um, but there's some equivalent embedded type of process there that's that's serving as leaf in those situations. Fascinating. Let's jump back in time a little bit. So you said you've been using Go for this for about 10 years. I don't know if you can remember. I can barely remember what I had for breakfast. So I don't know <laughs> if I can remember the details. But I'm curious, how did you choose Go and what were the alternatives you were considering at the time? Yeah, it's funny. You're right. I barely remember what I had for breakfast, but I can definitely remember some of these decisions. Um, you know, they were really kind of formative to the company. So when we first started Canopy, there was uh, myself and founder Steve Latham sitting at a table, and we had uh, really our very first engineer that we had brought into the to the company to help us sitting in a in a Starbucks, I think it was, or maybe it was like a some other coffee shop, but. Uh, and we were talking about the vision for what we wanted Canopy to be. And we knew that we needed an agent at the endpoint to be able to collect the information that we wanted and to serve the purpose of, uh, of doing the work. And as we discussed it, you know, we kind of laid out the, the principle. And one of the key driving principles was that the agent needed to be agnostic to the operating environment in which we live. So it didn't matter. We knew that, you know, the types of devices that we were going to encounter over the years were going to be diverse and we weren't going to be able to control what our customers brought to the table, whether in terms of, you know, device specifications, but also in terms of operating systems and environments that they were going to need to, to have. And so that was one of the first keys was that whatever we build needs to be agnostic to where it's operating. And the second key was we knew it needed to be small. Um, we knew it needed to be a compact type of application that didn't, you know, pick up a bunch of memory or CPU cycles because we knew that these devices weren't going to have a lot of power with them. I mean, you can think back 10 years ago, we're talking about like the first generation Raspberry Pi was, you know, was, was there. We weren't really talking about devices that had, you know, a lot of, a lot of processing power. And then um, we knew that we were going to have a relatively, um, small team that was going to support the actual agent itself, which meant that we didn't want to have to write it in four or five different languages um, in order to support the process that we needed. So our lead engineer at the time took uh, that input 
and we got to work on the prototype. Um, now, coming from really, you know, kind of a Java as my first language background, we took a look at Java, and obviously it has, you know, some of those promises built in, you know. Yeah, the right ones run anywhere promise is kind of yeah. the, the foundation, right? <laughs> right, yeah, like 20 years ago, right? Yeah. That was the idea. And, uh, and so we looked at that, but honestly, it was very briefly. You can, I'm sure most of the audience has probably had the experience of wanting to get Java someplace that it's not already, and then um, how difficult that can be sometimes, just in terms of getting the right, you know, JDK or getting the right JRE and the, you know, and deploying it to the right spot. And obviously, Oracle has changed some of their licensing model as well, and so that plays into it. But then you've got, um, obviously, some good alternatives there with, uh, with some different license terms as well. But at the end of the day, the biggest challenge with Java was deployment and then, of course, the size. Um, I mean, for, even with you know the tiny JDKs that you're able to use, that size is just too much for us um, to be able to really feel like we'd be able to support it on the devices that we um, were looking at. And so then um, the next alternative that we looked at was Python. And I think we actually have a version of Leaf um, that was fully written in Python in terms of the base functionality. And we liked that operating environment. But the biggest challenge there, again, is just distribution um, and being able to essentially just send a, you know, a native executable to a device know that it's going to work and be compatible. And so, you know, having to deal with a Python distribution and understanding if it was installed and if it wasn't installed and how you get it installed, it just didn't, it, it wasn't going to, to work for us in the same type of reasons that Java did. Although it was much smaller, obviously we could do in Python, you know, things that we could do in Java, which was fine. So then our engineer brought us to, to Go and at the time, you know, there was, you know, probably the biggest alternative to go from just a, a native perspective was C or, you know, C++. Um, because Rust hadn't really taken root yet um, and, and wasn't really something that we felt like was ready for us to be to evaluate. And so as we started to look at Go, it really did tick the mark. It was... Uh, a language that you could write code in that then we could natively compile any target system, at least any target system that we were concerned with, and then get a native executable that would just run on those environments. It uh, produced um, executables even with, you know, the static compilation where, you, you know, we're not having to depend on the dynamic libraries and the rest of it. It produced executables that were relatively small in size and that didn't take up a large footprint on the device. Um, and then uh, from a maintenance perspective, you know, uh, having a small team, again, it was, we, we only had to write it once and then we could figure out how to compile it for all the different targets that we have. And so that's why we landed there. Um, and really ever since we've been, we've been investing in Go for our endpoint agent. And it's been a pretty good decision. I mean, obviously along the way, we've taken a pause and thought, all right, was there a different way that we should be doing this or different mm -hmm. technologies that might contribute? And so far, we haven't made a decision else uh, otherwise every time that we've evaluated it, you know, both because of the, obviously, the IP that we've built up in it today, but also just because the other alternatives don't really offer anything much more compelling for what um, we've already put together. So, Do you think if you were starting from scratch today, you, you didn't already have that library of working code? Would you make the same decision again? Or, or I imagine you'd probably look more closely at Rust than you did back then. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I definitely think we would look a lot closer at Rust if we started over again. Um, if we were, you know, if we were starting the same process today, I don't know that we've come to a different conclusion. I, I, but it would be a much closer race, I think, yeah. than, than we had then. Certainly, with the benefit of hindsight and with both of the languages being more mature than they were previously, then. I don't necessarily think that there's a technical advantage one way or the other for the languages. So it really would come down to more of the developer community and, you know, the adoption um, of the technology and where we saw it going versus where it is today would weigh heavily in those decisions. I'm curious, you mentioned all the platforms you build on. How many platforms do you target? Oh, goodness. Um, well, I guess it kind of depends on how you tell them. Sure. Um, I can legitimately say that we're on... I think every version of Windows and every flavor of Windows, 32-bit, 64-bit, you know, whatever type of processor you want to put underneath it, from XP up into 11, right? I mean, okay. and so I think we have things deployed that are still on XP, so I won't name those guys because I know they should be. <laughs> no naming um, and shaming here. <laughs> exactly. And then from a Linux perspective, I mean, it's as, it, it's as wide as, as you can imagine. Uh, we've got... Leaf deployed on legitimately 20-year-old tiny devices that are running the most obscure old version of, of Linux that you've ever seen, up into like, you know, brand new, fresh off the line, you know, Raspberry Pis or, you know, VMs spun up and cloud systems and everywhere in between. And um, from an architecture standpoint, we, we touch it all. Um, we've actually... Um, most of what we see is either ARM or, you know, AMD 64, but we've actually even deployed on top of the NIST architecture before for, you know, like a, a embedded router type of situation where um, that uh-huh. was necessary. Curious if you've ever used or, or maybe just considered uh, using TinyGo? Uh, no, honestly. We've never had a challenge with what we've been putting together, fitting within um, the confines of what we've got, but I will take that as a note. To, uh, to go and investigate. I haven't used it either, but I know that it targets much smaller systems with much smaller you know, memory uh, capabilities. So it's an interesting, interesting topic to look at. You mentioned that uh, you even have people running still Windows XP. Uh, does that mean that you're still running old versions of Go? Because I think they dropped Windows XP support a year or two ago. I don't remember exactly when. I'm, I'm curious what versions of Go you're using. Yeah, it's a good part of our journey too um, to kind of think about some of what um, we've seen over the last kind of 10 years as we've been developing in it. For the longest time, and you'll forgive me, I'm not exactly sure what version it was, but we were on um, a relatively older version of Go, and then we had kind of got ourselves stuck there uh, for a little bit. And so um, for those systems, that's typically, you know, what um, what we probably built those uh, those libraries against or those executable against that are running there. But more recently, um, really in the last, Oh, at two to three years, we've made a concerted effort to get current on across our technology base, but particularly with Go, because one of the challenges that we were having um, is that we were building most of our uh, deployments pre the addition of the Go mod and, and Go some capabilities there, the Go modules. And so when we only had just a few people that were that were performing these and we had, you know, maybe a, a centralized build server where that was occurring, then we could control some of the versioning a little bit better. But we were still getting some inconsistencies. You know, you build it 
on Monday and you get one version of an included library, you voted on Tuesday, you get another version of an included library and you're not really managing that very well. Um, but uh, a few years back, we made the decision, okay, we've got to get a current here. And what that allowed us to do um, was to really transition all of our internal build processes and then obviously what we're bringing in from the, the community um, to utilize the, the Go modules approach where now we've got really defined versions for each of the things that we build and a more, much more repeatable build processes. And that has been kind of life-changing for our support team <laughs> because now uh, when they get a build and they, obviously our support team helps us to distribute the build out to existing customers and then we have an implementation team that's putting it in for new customers, but they know, right? All right, this build has these features in it. It was, you know, has these supporting libraries associated with it. So that when we do have issues or find bugs, that it's a lot easier for us to trace back to, to what we have going on there. Right. Um, it's really been probably one of the most impactful bits of kind of technical debt that we've paid over the past year, just in terms of streamlining our processes and making our lives a little bit easier uh, from a support and uh, sustainability perspective. Awesome. I'm curious uh, if people are interested in learning about Canopy. Um, the website is gocanopy.com. Is that is that a coincidence or is that because you use Go? Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's more of a coincidence than not. Yeah. There's definitely, uh, we won't get too deep into the marketing aspect of stuff that we'll probably work the pants off uh, your audience here, but the uh, certainly um, we've looked at um, some domain names that don't include Go in them, but those are not currently available. We, uh, we've we always had gocanopy.io, and uh, it kind of has served as our underlying internal domain. And then as we went through the, the rebranding effort uh, from Banyan Hills to Canopy, we were able to uh, acquire gocanopy.com, which is great but it's much easier to remember than banyanhills.com and it actually is associated with the product that we've got. So, but yeah, I love the, the, um, the imagery, right. Of go, which is like, all right, let's get started. You know, uh, let's go. And certainly from a philosophy that we try to have here at Canopy, that's the idea. Let's, let's get started. Let's go do it. And, uh, in terms of our journey, go has certainly been facilitated that that on the, on the end point for us. So I'm curious a little bit more about your experience, personal experience with Go. I don't know. Are you still fairly hands-on or or has that, let's say, privilege been taken from you as the company's grown and things have, uh, have, have advanced? Right. Yeah. Somewhere in between, you know, okay. um, certainly I think that our team here is very capable in terms of their ability to develop and utilize Go from a language perspective. And I was never felt like that I was necessarily a, a native Go developer. You know, I, certainly our lead engineer that, um, that started down this path, he feels much more, you know, native in that space than I ever have. But it, just from, you know, unfortunately at this Point, multiple decades of experience just in, in development in general, I am able to occasionally offer some expertise for the team. Typically, it's not day-to-day, hey, let me add a new feature or let me address a bit there. More often than not, it's simply, hey, let's look at this together and see if we can you know, understand it maybe was difficult to understand or even 
hey, this was written 10 years ago, Webb. Do you have any idea about why we did it this way? Yeah. You know, it doesn't seem right. And, uh, and being able to offer the expertise there. But uh, I definitely agree with the sentiment in terms of it being a privilege. It's hard for someone whose kind of career has been built around being hands-on and, and, and developing new and interesting things to let some of that go and, in, in a real term and have others kind of pick up the reins and, and move forward with it. It's uh, doubly difficult when, you know, you care as much about it as you do in terms of building a, a company, building an organization, building a product. But you have to, right? Um, yeah, right. Otherwise, the other team members don't get their opportunity. Uh, and you certainly can't scale yourself out of being just the same person. So, exactly. Um, exactly. That's definitely uh, something that you end up having to let go. Well, uh, there's two questions we like to ask all of our guests on this show. Uh, I, pr- I primed you a little bit before we started recording. The first one is, let's say you're forced to add a feature to Go. And, and in this case, I want to broaden that to just say the Go community, the Go ecosystem. What's something that you think would be useful to add to Go uh, in, in the largest general sense? Yeah. And thank you for, for priming me a little bit on this one. As I've, as I've thought about it, you know, one of the things that we do here at Canopy is, and I know that this is a little bit uh, different from um, uh, the way that the Go community works at large, but we are developing a proprietary product. And part of the challenges that we've had over the years um, is for private uh, repositories within Go. It's not that you can't do it, because you certainly can, and and we've been able to to work through those things. But just more of the native kind of, especially when it comes to getting a new developer um, up to speed on and and building and, and developing within our system, it takes longer than I'd like for it to. And most of that is just because of the challenges with dealing with repositories that aren't public in nature. And so uh, I think, you know, that's something that the Go community can kind of look at, you know, where does and, and where do they want, you know, that support to, to live, be able to build and, and distribute things that um, aren't necessarily public, you know. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of room for improvement around uh, working with private repositories, uh, something I've done at a number of companies, and it's it's always a bit of a pain. Let's flip that around a little bit. Uh, let's suppose you had the option to remove something from Go, what uh, or or the Go ecosystem or community. Are there any warts that you think we could get rid of? Yeah, you know, I mean, I'll tell you that recently have gotten engaged with the uh, Gopher Black um, community there. And really have kind of had my eyes opened a little bit to the amount of support that is out there from the community, which I think is fantastic. For us personally, we uh, we do have some challenges around hiring new resources to work in and go. Um, and so from a award perspective, I think um, it's not necessarily a award of the technology um, or even of the community. It's just uh, reflective, I think. You know, the challenges that you have great people and great developers to work in, you know, the products that uh, we're really passionate about. And then the other aspect of that is is cross-training. You know, sometimes we'll need to have a, a member of our development team 
work briefly within the space that is the ghost space and then maybe transition back to some of the other work that they do. Um, and that cross-training um, and just the ability to have like a, a really good way to transition from what are functional languages, you know, which may be more object-oriented languages into a functional language and some of the nuances that that brings from, uh, especially from a Go perspective, uh, it's difficult for us. And that might be the case for everyone, but anything that, you know, we could we could have that would ease that transition from one technology to another from a concept perspective, even down to, a, you know, just the simple, how do I, you know, X, and, and the ability to be able to find that information quickly is, uh, is something that uh, that we could, we could definitely use more of uh, from the community. I will say, I mean, just briefly, you know, the emergence of some of the, you know, generative AI technology certainly helping there, um, you know, because they're able to, you know, how do I do X and, and whatever, whether it's Go or Bash Shell or Java or whatever the case is, able to, to help answer those questions quickly. But there's, at least in my opinion, there's no, um, there's no substitute for the been there, done that, and the ability for someone not to get past just the, hey, here's a bit of code that works, but here's a bit of code that works and here's why it works. And, you know, because you've got to solve the next problem, not the one that's in front of you. Yeah, I mean, I think I think switching from especially an object oriented language to Go uh, is a little bit of a learning curve because because Go looks object oriented at, at first glance, and then you realize it's not really doing the same thing sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you know, thread management um, within Go um, is something that we've uh, seen pop up for us as a challenge from time to time, mm-hmm. uh, and that's always a tough one because uh, suddenly um, you've got, especially for us, where our you know, our product is running on these small devices at the endpoint, limited resources. If we suddenly have just threads that are, are being spawned, you know, and not controlled, then we can quickly eat up resources, crash the device, and, and that's no good. And so that area uh, and the way that Go handles it, it makes it super easy to do, but then not necessarily um, as transparent, especially as someone who's coming from an object-oriented um, point of view in the go, um, then it can definitely cause some headaches. Yeah, definitely. Well, what, before we wrap up, is there anything that I've, I failed to ask or failed to talk about that you think is important? I appreciate that, Jonathan. I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I, I, obviously, I'd encourage um, the audience to um, visit gocanopy.com, see what we're all about. Um, and, you know, if you guys are interested in, in helping us along our journey, we're always um, open to talking to passionate developers um, and uh, we'd be excited to, to hear from you. Awesome. So yeah, gocanopy.com is the website. They have social media links at the bottom of the page. So if you want to follow them on, on LinkedIn, it uh, looks like you have a YouTube channel, Twitter, all the fun places. Are you a remote company? I mean, for anybody listening or, or do we need to focus on specific uh, regions if someone wants to work for you? Yeah, we are, um, we're headquartered in Atlanta, um, uh, just north of Atlanta, uh, in the Alpharetta area, for those that are familiar. Uh, but we do have development presence across the United States, and we don't particularly have uh, the situation where we uh, demand to have folks here uh, in Atlanta when we hire. Now, for those that are in Atlanta, we certainly have time that we try to spend with each other in the office each week. And we find that to be quite valuable just in terms of cooperation and collaboration. But we also have fully remote employees, Illinois, Texas, um, all over the place. 
Great. Well, thanks, Webb. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for talking about uh, your experience with Go and teaching us about Canopy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Jonathan. Until next time.